0: Well, God, thank you. Thank you so much for this rain, the relief of this rain. We uh, we know that there are others, Lord, who are getting too much, St. Louis and Kentucky. Uh, Lord, we are grateful for what you've sent us. We pray that you'd continue to provide us what we need in the way that we need it, in the amount that we need. Um, we ask you that you would uh, keep your preserving hair, hand upon us and care for us. And Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, what we're getting into and how we're continuing as we continue through all these various heresies and hopefully our own faith and our own confidence in You and in your, your Word and Your way of being strengthened, Lord. Please guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get going here. Okay, the heresy zone. Do, 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 do. There's a fifth dimension between that which is known to man. It's a dimension as vast as space and timeless as infinity. It's the middle ground between light and shadow, between the pit of man's fears. In the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of the imagination. It's also what we call uh, the area we call the heresy zone. I wonder how long Rod Serling spent writing that little paragraph out because it became famous. All right. So, what are some of our aims? Can anybody remember some of our aims for the class? I'm sorry. To know God, knowing know better. Okay. What else? Okay, alright, it's 9.30 in the morning, I can see it already. Here we go, so first, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17-18. That we'll be able to be aware, keep stable, and grow. And you think about 2 Peter 3, verse 16, that Peter says and warns there are those who twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. And then Peter says, therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, that there are those who will twist these things. Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So the number one aim is that we will still be stable. Knowing these things are out there, they've been out there, we've been told they're out there, we're not surprised. Because we've been apprised. I like that jingle. That's pretty cool. Right? So we're not surprised because we've been apprised. We're never shocked that there are heresies. Okay, It should never be shocked. Um, and So knowing that, we do, the aim is that we are not carried away with their, the error of their lawlessness and lose our own stability. But instead, the positive side of this is that we're to grow. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the number one aim. Number two, become familiar with aspects of our early history by understanding several of the major heretical movements and moments for the first five centuries. That actually uh, dictates a lot of things that happened in early church history. And then reflect on our own day and our own place in history. How do these things show up in our own time? And then be be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it is important. So those are our aims. So the plan, as you know... We started out. We talked about what heresy is and how to think about it. Then uh, we talked about the Ebionites, Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism, Montanism, Arianism, Modalism. Last week we did Manicheanism. This week we're doing Donatism, and then Nestorianism and Pelagianism. So I'm um, just keep the map in front of you so you know where we're headed. That we actually have a plan here. So let's talk about Donatism. We're going to talk about delineations very quickly and then we're going to get into definitions and then we're going to get into discussing modern manifestations and then deliberate on our biblical responses. So as we've noticed over the last, uh, through this whole class, most of the various heresies are answering our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? And they're getting it wrong and that will shape how they view many other topics. And we've noticed that with almost all of them, okay? Sometimes, very much like the Montanists that we studied a month and a half ago, sometimes, some of them are more focused on the perceived failures and weaknesses in the church, okay? And so that's where they start. They they appear to be clearly orthodox in several ways, but they're focusing on a weakness, and then it becomes out as times you push, 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 then you realize that they're misanswering Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Uh, and it's very much just like the Donatists. The Montanists were that way, and then the Donatists, and that's what we're going to be today is for the Donatists. So any questions before we jump in? All right. I hope you have your snorkels on and your face masks, here we go. Alright, so the T, I've just decided to abbreviate, I'm tired of typing it, so it's the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, T-E, Ted, Ted T, Ted T, Theological Examiner, uh, 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 the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. So you define uh, Donatism as a schismatic movement, so notice right up front, what's, what is the root meaning of heresy in the Greek, heresis? It's right there in that first two words of the definition, Schism. Right, that is the root meaning, and all heresies do become schismatic. But schism itself is heresy. Okay, that's the way it's used all the way through the New Testament. The only time it refers specifically to false, to, to aberrant beliefs is when you get to Second Peter chapter two verse one. It's the only time it's used that way. That doesn't mean that that's the only definition. That schism is the only definition, but it just shows you that that was the way it was used throughout. Okay, it was always understood that way. So it's a schismatic movement arising in the 4th century. So this is a 300 A.D. time period. In its first stage, it was a North African expression of a doctrine of the church. So notice the emphasis. It's a doctrine, it's an expression of the doctrine of the church. In its second stage, as it grew and developed, it became a popular rebellion. It became something political that pitted the Berber and landless against the landed Latin Catholic elite now you say that last line four times three times fast landed Latin Catholic elite okay so it begins as a as an expression of, of the doctrine of the church ecclesiology, but then it be, it morphs into something much more political much more sociological as a rebellion that uh, pits the Berbers and landless against the the those who have land the latin catholic elite who have land so that's why it actually will become a little bit more violent and that will help to explain something that augustine will say that people get embarrassed by him when he talks about the donatists we'll get into that in a minute and so moving on going down to theopedia.com if you ever just want something very quick theopedia.com is is a, it's an okay place to go it's very simple and easy online Donatism was an early heresy. It was named for its leader, the theologian Donatus the Great. 355. He died in 355. Donatism included a group of extremist sects, mostly in North Africa, that emphasized asceticism. They valued martyrdom and found lapses of faith, even under torture or threat of death, inexcusable. The heresy involved in their contention uh, involved their contention that the sacraments required a priest of pure moral character to be effective. So the sacraments to be effective requires a priest with pure moral character, and only the pure who had not lapsed under the persecutions should be allowed in the church, should be allowed in the church. Actually, so you may remember when I did that church history class years ago, and you may not remember, so I'm going to remind you. So when you read the old book, The Shepherd of Hermes, which was an early church document from about 150 A.D., it began to get traction. Well, it's all these visions that the writer has. Well, in that statement, and this is where it starts getting traction, in that set of visions, he's told that after baptism, you get one sin... And if you don't, and after that you got no other. There's no hope. Well, that begins to gain traction. You always have this movement within the church where you have an extreme purist holiness doctrine. Okay, and that's what you have. So that's this is why, for example, Constantine refused to be baptized before he died, or uh, until right before he died, because he, like many others, were scared they might sin after baptism, and the. Folk religion of the day was one sin after baptism is all you get baby and that's it. Does that make sense? So that's why when you start reading church history you start realizing people are putting off baptism. It's this whole purist strain and so the Donatists actually had lots of traction in their wheels. So much so that it's, it sounds almost like 21st century Oklahoma City, right? And so, so much so that you have the Catholic church the, which was be understood differently than you understand it now that would just be the, the, the church or the, the orthodox church and then you have the Donatist church and they're just at the ends different ends of the same block and they would be almost just as big they would have uh, bishop and priests and whole, uh, whole diocese kind of approach and everything so there was, there was grace and forgiveness yes my dad I well, want my dad used to say son there are some groups that they just sow their oats all week long and then go to church on Sunday and pray for a crop failure <laughs> right so but that's not what you're supposed to do yes uh, I mean they I'm sure as it, it, happened, I mean, you can redefine sin, right? There are certain groups that I can think of right now that redefine sin so they can tell you to your face without blushing, I haven't sinned for 20 years. I've reached a new level of holiness, right? I mean, you can tweak it. And so that's kind of what goes on. So that's, by the way, that's a good corrective for us to ask that question. If we ever start feeling like we're better than, just putting anybody in there, just stop and go, but am I really? Are we really? Right? So yeah, they... They did talk the talk. I don't know if they walked the walk, but they talked the talk. All right, uh, moving on. Officially, the trouble arose from the persecutions under the emperor Diocletian in 303 to 305 A.D. Sometimes, during that persecution, sometimes the priests and the bishops would escape torture or be released from torture and persecution if they handed over to the authorities' sacred texts. The sacred texts could be scripture but often were lectionaries that contained scripture, but other things like prayers and stuff like that. So they would turn over, sometimes they would turn over sacred texts to get out from underneath the torture. Or church regalia, they might uh, hand over vestments or, or a baptismal font or something like that. Uh, because that's what, that's what um, Diocletian was doing. He was trying to stamp out, sounds almost like what's going on in Eastern Europe, try to stamp out the culture, the identity by wiping out the signs of the identity, right? Scripture and vestments and all those things, right? So the same, similar, very similar approach. And so, um, so they could escape it under pressure. They would be able to escape if they, if they did that, and that was con- considered by many to be treason, so they will be called traditores tra- tra- do- tra- 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 do- t- or whatever, traitors, tra- yeah, traitors That's what they'll be called in Latin. And after the persecutions, Bishop Donat, uh, Donatus refused to accept any sacraments or any ordinations done by a bishop who had failed under the persecutions, but the issues began to run even deeper. So you've got to understand, that's the front issue. And I, there's some sympathy there with him. I get what he's after. But like I'm, I'm reading, where's Peter and Janie? Are they in here? I saw them a minute ago. They're back, back there. So I just got a book the other day from uh, Voice of the Martyrs. It's called, uh, I don't remember what it's called, something fire. But it, it's uh, eight stories of women in persecution. And one of them I just finished yesterday was a Filipino woman, Christian woman being attacked by Muslims. And how often um, uh, people were scared. I mean, their lives were on the line. And they might cave momentarily, right? And then uh, and then sometimes they were They were forced conversions. The Christians didn't actually compromise, but the Muslims made them Muslim, even forcing on the young girls, forcing female circumcision. They wouldn't even go in there. Ah! And so then, if any of that happened, then sometimes the Christians in the Philippines would not accept them because they they had compromised. Okay? We're going to come back around to that in a minute. Because there's somebody in the Bible that should already be in your head when you think about that. Okay? So again, the uh, the, the, uh, evangelical dictionary of theology, Donatism grew out of the teachings of Tertullian, who was a uh, uh, a Montanist, remember, and Cyprian. Following these two, Donatists taught that a priest's part in the sacraments, now listen to this language, the priest's part in the sacraments was substantial. He had to be holy and in proper standing with the church for the sacrament to be valid rather than simply instrumental. To Donatus, the church was a visible society of the elect separate from the world. It was the kingdom on earth. And so the priest had to be holy for the sacraments to be, to be effective. Um, and by holy, I mean, he lays out that criteria. Basically, no compromise of any kind, no failings of any kind, etc. And so he's expecting a pure church. Okay, Any questions on that before we go on? That's really crucial information. We'll see why when we get further on. And so, uh, to have poured out a libation to the emperor or to surrender a Bible to the Roman persecutors to burn was to be a heretic or a traditore. I didn't say that right, but I... Okay, a traitor. Any who had done so were forever... Notice that language forever outside the visible church unless they were rebaptized, being saved all over again using their language. Clergy who had failed could not be restored as clergy, at least not to their or, their ordained vocation. They might be restored to the church. In essence, their view was a straight line: pure clergy, pure sacraments, pure church. You see the straight line, right? Pure clergy, pure sacraments, pure church, okay? And so Alistair McGrath in his book Heresy, Donatus and his followers insisted that the efficacy, the efficiency, the power, the potency of the church and its sacramental system was deep dependent upon the moral or cultic purity of its representatives, the grace and healing power of the Christian gospel was thus understood to be contingent upon the purity of the church and its ministers. I mean, that's a great way to put that so that you, you get the sense of what's being stated there and being worked at. Okay. Up to this point, before I go any further, any, any questions at all? Any clarifications? Yeah, yeah, most of them were dead. I mean, most of them stood up and died, and then the few that um, didn't—that was that was the other part. And that's something to keep in mind too. There's that other part. We made it through. You know, armless, right? We made it through, and so there's a bitterness that you didn't stick to your guns, and we did. You know, it's the same. So I could see I can see psychologically or emotionally why that would be such a big deal as well. So yeah. But yes, there were a few. What else? Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you're probably right. So there's probably an over-reliance upon the, the authority of the clergy versus Scripture. So you've got some of that. So there's things happening right now. So you already should hear some of it as well. Um, the idea of um, be, there's a slow beginning percolation that the sacraments um, indiscriminately give grace if the priest is right. You know, but still, you're starting to get to this point that will explode later. By the time you get to the Middle Ages, where it will be all grace. The, the uh, sacraments are all grace, and the church dictates who gets that grace. You know. Like, uh-huh. So yeah, so that's the other thing to pick up as we're going through there are there are sometimes there are actions or reactions that are not right that are actually beginning to expose some of the changes that will then become really big monsters when you get that you know that when you get to the reformation. But they're not full blown right now, they're just in you know just in little plant stage, you know, little sapling stage. That's a good way to put it. All right, everybody ready? So one of the great opponents of Donatism was a North African bishop by the name of Augustine. Okay, He was a huge opponent. Um, he even, and here's where it becomes an issue for some, he even begged the emperor to use military and police force to force the Donatists to come back into the church. Now some people get upset about that, and I, I disagree with him doing that, but it's becoming a political movement. And so there's more than just an ecclesiological problem. It's becoming a social class warfare kind of thing. And he's saying, well, if they're going to play that game, then let's call on the emperor to go ahead and use military and police might to bring them back in so they'll quit doing that nonsense, right? So there's some of that going on. But Augustine was a big opponent against Donatism. And so you'll see... Um, so some of his writings as you're going through uh, some of his stuff, when he gets to the sacraments, you'll... Uh, you Knowing that, then you'll understand why he emphasizes some some of the things that he does in some of his writings. I just wanted to point that out as a historical moment. And so McGrath goes on, he says, For Augustine, the holiness in question is not that of its members, but of Christ. The church cannot be a congregation of saints, of holy ones in a literal sense, in this world in that its members are contaminated with original sin. However, the church is sanctified and made holy by Christ, a holiness that will be perfected and finally realized in the last judgment. So even though Donatus is actually, his, his, his presenting issue is ecclesiology, you begin to realize when you start listening and thinking through what Augustine, how he's answering it, he's actually saying <clears throat> the problem is, is Christological to some extent, okay? Um, and, and, and eschatological. So Donatus is wanting the eschaton, the final age, to happen now. The church is pure and perfect now, right now, right here, in this place, in this moment. And Augustine say, wait, but we got, you know, it's not done, right? The kingdom has not yet fully come. The end is not yet here. We have a hope of the future, Okay? Well, so he, yeah yeah so I mean Augustine's holding that line but it's becoming more and more common in a Catholic circles that baptism washes away original sin so it's actually kind of sneaking its way into the, the little c Catholic church in that sense okay and so uh, but he holds that line um, anybody else I'm going to say yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and, and I think, what, so the, the, you know, are, were, they, were they believers? And it would just depend on each person. So, like, one time I was out in front of a, the abortion clinic in Midland, Texas, and my friend, who was the warden for the Latin Mass Catholic Church in town, that was not in fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church, but he used to shame me for being a sectarian. What? Anyways, so, you know who I'm talking about, right, Cindy? So, one day we're sitting out, standing out there talking, and uh, just in an unguarded moment, we're talking about our past. And I said, you know, but for the mercy of God, I would have no hope. I mean, the only way I'm getting in is it. And he goes, yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, dude. I didn't. I didn't go anywhere with that because I didn't want to put up his hackles and start fighting me and giving me, you know. But in his unguarded moment, he was actually there. So I, it just depends. Yeah, yeah. I always call those blessed inconsistencies. You know we're Thank the Lord for blessed inconsistencies. We may say one thing with our mouth, but in our actions may actually be right, you know, more along what they should be. Okay. Um, What did I do here? Ah, I got these backwards. So Christ is the ultimate guarantor. So McGrath goes on uh, referring to Augustine that Christ is the ultimate guarantor of the efficacy of the sacrament. The minister plays only a secondary and subordinate role. He's an instrument. He's not the cause of the holiness of the sacrament or the and so forth. And so there is a clear link, which often passed unnoticed between the Pelagian view of the humanity of humanity and the Donatist view of the church. Now when we get to Pelagianism, I want you to remember this. There is a clear but often missed link between what will come out as Pelagianism later. And Plagius' view on the perfectibility of humanity, and Donatists' view, the Donatists' view of the perfectibility of the church. So both of them rest on the belief that we can become what we believe we ought to be, that there is no place for failure or weakness, and still less for other human traits that point to our frailty. Beoth. Now, where did that I come from? Anyways, both set out demands for an idealized humanity and hence idealized believers that simply cannot be achieved in practice. I think mean, that's a great, a great description of what the problem is with Donatism. Okay? That just like Pelagianism, it has a skewed view of anthropology and ecclesiology that somehow you can have perfect humans now and you can have the perfect church now and there's no room then for the humanity of the church and the humanity of humans where there's weaknesses and failures and, and, and can therefore be restoration and so on. There's just no room for that. Before I go on, any, any observations or questions? Questions? So uh, that gives you an overview of Donatism. So, uh, what, where do you see modern manifestations of Donatism? Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. With my. Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Great. And that's a that's a that's where usually where the rubber hits the road when you come to b- baptism. You know, well, I was baptized as a baby, but I didn't become a believer till I was eighty-six. You know, does that matter? Well, see, now we're moving into that. It's easy for us to fall over into that, you know, that that sense of it. So good. Where else? Where else do you see modern donatism? Yeah, Cindy, the other Cindy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Once you get into once you get into that sense of that you can achieve some level of real existential holiness, that is faultless in any way, then you're starting to move in that direction. Okay, where else? Where else do you see kind of, the, and it doesn't have to be a hard Donatism, it could be a softer Donatism. Where, could, where else do you see Donatism? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yes, that was that was intriguing. Yes, the Catholic priest who said one word wrong and when he was doing baptisms and, and um, yeah, and then they negated all those baptisms. It's a very, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a Wesleyan doctrine. I mean, so that's why it's not just Nazarenes. It's Assembly of God. It's Church of God. Anderson, Indiana. All these um, Methodists. It's all the, the Wesleyan tradition. Yeah, but there's that connection. Yeah, that's why he brings that up. And I thought that was a great connection. The Pelagianism and Donatism actually are, they're just flip sides of the same coin, right? Yeah, yeah, the priest in the ecclesiology, but that's where it's already moving into this Pelagian mindset, right? So think about, yes... Talking for the for the Donatists? Yes, the oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's probably guilt by association. The other side of that, you know, holiness by association. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yes, yes. Hey, you should write a book with that title. I'm okay. You're okay. Oh wait, it's already been written. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, things like that. yes, yeah, yeah, Toning it down some, yeah. Yeah, 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 right, right. yes, yes, yeah, you can get on all that, but I think that I think that any denominational or church, setting. And I think that I think we Presbyterians can fall into this trap too. Anytime you move to any kind of expectation of a pure church. Oh, there's three sinners in that church. I'm going to a better church. I mean, we've already begun to move down the Donatist path, right? Now, there's some legitimacy. I mean, if it's egregious heresy and there's no discipline and all that, I got it. But that's not normally how that works out. What I normally see is well, I went to that church because that one over there, they actually, you know, they actually drank wine. I mean, there was sin in that church or whatever. And so it's not a pure church. I'm looking for the pure church. So the guy that started Rhode Island, what was his name again? Robert, uh, um, yeah, Roger, Roger Williams, that's right. You know, him pulling away from all of the churches in New England to go found his own. Right, and so the joke is, you know, I went to go start the pure church and got down to me and my wife and now I'm wondering about her, right? Yes, Glenn. Hit him. Here, I'll tell you what, I'll hold him and you go ahead and just kick him. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And in, Yeah, I mean there's a there is a place for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is instinctive, and there's a right place for that. Um, leadership's leadership is almost always held to a higher level because they're leading. And so their actions can actually harm those below them, right? So as parents and all that, you, you see that. But then this gets taken over beyond that. and it, So that's, it's funny because almost every heresy, as you heard me say, almost takes, almost always takes some good doctrine, something legitimate, and then overemphasizes it to the exclusion of others and thus taking it out of context makes it into this heretical aspect. And so Donatism is kind of hitting on some things that we need that are right, but then they, go, they just keep going. Right, you keep on. Yes. Yes, LCMS. Sure. yeah right and there, yeah and there's scriptural reasons for some of those things and so I get that so yeah I mean yeah I mean, I'll tell you my personal notion is and I in the PCA when we, we've had ministers who have committed adultery and it always grieves me that they can be restored in three years my personal opinion is that that's such a, vi- a violation of, su- of such a trust they should never be restored as ministers they can be members in good standing restored but never again as a minister. Just like also if I'm addicted to Oxycontin or whatever and I go to your houses to do pastoral visits and I start stealing your medicine, I'm violating huge, huge trust. I think there's some aspect of that. But this, there's just no sense of restoration whatsoever in the Donatist perspective. But I think you'll notice that when churches begin to move towards uh, we've got to have purity. To the point that it's capital P purity, we've got to have the purest church, right? Then you start having that problem, and there are a whole there's a whole tradition, a larger denominational tradition that has that as part of their system. That's why they've divided so many times, you know. Um, and then even in our own stream, we have some of that. That's why we've divided quite a bit, because a lot of it has to do with purity, right? this church has got to be the most doctrinally pure and got to be the purest on all these different levels and that becomes a problem and so we're going to get into some answers here in a minute but but there's lot there are lots of manifestations i think glenn is right i think it's it's our human inclination towards several different things tribalism is one our tribe is better than your tribe right so you know we're better off on my side. So you'd come over here on my side to get in my group and we're better off than those other people. Once we get into our, Ben Sass in his book, Them, talks about when we start going us versus them, then you start seeing it clearer and clearer where you begin to then sidestep your own group's faults. Right? And that happens a lot. So, yeah, okay. Anybody else? Let's get some responses here. So where? what are our biblical responses to Donatism, whether ancient or modern? What's the first person that comes to your mind from sacred scripture? Peter! Score! Give that man a chocolate chip cookie. I mean, that should have taken care of this whole issue right up front. Right? Here's Peter denied our Lord Jesus under pressure, persecution and was restored, and he was repentant, or mind you, he was very repentant, But he was restored. Jesus himself had no problems restoring him. Even restored him in a way that he knew that, that he was targeting that specific sin of treason three times by saying to him three times, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. And he was grieved the third time that Jesus asked him. Why was he grieved? Because he knew Jesus was getting into his business, and was being very specific about what he was forgiving him for and restoring him where he was restoring him okay so that should have taken care of the whole issue right up front alright can you think of other, other biblical responses to Donatism especially when you think about like um, the sacraments or the church yes Cindy I, yeah, I mean yeah, it's a question you would you would need to ask any church or any group that thinks that they have that they're the purer of the two of this than this group or whatever because you have to ask them because I'll give you an example, here's another biblical response. Just read 1 Corinthians, y'all. Paul doesn't tell first the Corinthians, he doesn't say, "Look, you guys are out." He calls them at the very beginning saints, holy ones. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, I stumble in that first verse, that first two verses, when he calls them saints, and he says they've been sanctified in Christ. I'm going, Paul, have you read your own letter? Right? But that tells you, right? It, it actually answers that question. So 1 Peter, or 1 2 Corinthians, both would be a great response, biblical response, just walking through and saying, but he calls them saints, but they're not perfect. They're still faulty. In fact, they're causing him lots of trouble. You know, and you can just go through. And there's even sexual morality in the church, and he does tell them to deal with the sexual morality. They were wrong to think that they were above, they were proud of that sexual morality. And he calls them on the carpet, but he doesn't say, because that was in your church, everybody leave and go start a pure church. He tells them to deal with it, work it. Right? And so, I mean, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are a great biblical response to Donatism. You think of anything else? What must I do to be saved? What good thing must I do? Well, keep the commandments. Oh, I've done them all. Yeah, right. right, Sell all you have. That's your real God. Sell all your you have and come follow me. Oh, I can't do that. Anybody else? So I love the way. our confession is actually, and it's just falling in line with the the larger church and its understanding. This was all worked out by August with Augustine and with some of the others, and they hammered this out. and We've stayed with this uh, officially, at least. And so, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter Twenty Five of the Church, its Paragraph Four and Five. And you can just go if you've got a copy of the confession, just look at the scripture the scripture proof text below and take them and start reading them in context and you begin to see where they're drawing from. This Catholic little c, Catholic church, hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure. I'm so happy that this language is in there. According as the doctrine of the Gospels taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely. As so I tell in the leadership class, there's a, there's a, a continuum, if you will, a, a spectrum of this more or less purely, right? Does it fall within there? Then they're okay, right? They, th- that's, a good, that's a church to go to, be a part of. There may be other things to think about, but that spectrum is extremely important, that more or less purely. And then in paragraph five, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated, some have so degenerated, as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. So there's no doubt that some fall off the ledge. Right? And where do they fall off the ledge? Well, you could start going through what are the basic things that make us Christian versus non-Christian. Right? So what we say about Jesus is a big, big thing, right? Things like that. But that, that admission... Even the purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error. Right? It's a great statement. Right? So there's no true pure church on earth. We're still looking for Jesus to return and finish up what's left in that regard. Right? So that's Ephesians 5. He, he, has, he's the, he has the bride that he's going to, he is going to, future tense, present to him pure and without spot and without wrinkle. The day is coming and we can long for it, okay? And then when it comes to the sacraments, here's from the larger catechism, Westminster larger catechism on the sacraments. And you will notice how this is really dealing with Donatism. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation not by any power in themselves or any virtue derived from the piety of or intention of him by whom they are administered but only by the working of the holy ghost and the blessing of christ by whom they are instituted what makes the sacraments effective what it's not the it's not the one doing the sacraments it's christ himself okay So uh, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ at his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith and and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion with one another, and to distinguish them from those who are without. But the big thing I wanted to point out was that first one, number 161, the, the instrumentalism, the minister is the instrument. It's not a pure sacrament because he's got all of his ducks waddling in a row, quacking the same song. Does that make sense? Okay. So anything else on Donatism? Any questions? So keep in mind the connection between Pelagianism and Donatism. Okay. That'll come back later when we get into Pelagius and why uh, we're listening here to here as a heresy. Okay. So what, with all of this in mind, how should this impact our faith, our relationships, our devotions and worship, our understanding of the church, our confidence in the sacraments, our emphasis to, here's from the BCO, the Book of Church Order, our ordination vows, our emphasis to strive for the purity peace unity and edification of the church how does all of that impact this these things as I suspect yeah right right right. My favorite analogy was in an AA. I remember the, an old AA guy telling a, 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 uh, someone who'd been in AA for a little while who was still having problems. And he said, he said, being in AA is like having two amputees, you know? And so one's got their amputation on the left leg, though, and the amputation's on the right leg. And what you do, how do you walk? You put your arms together and you hobble together, right? And you lean on each other and you do it. And that's, I think that, that that's exactly how that impacts is we realize we don't have all of our stuff together. So we work with each other. There's grace there. There's forgiveness. We strive for, uh, for all of us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We just strive for growing in sanctification. All those things, but um, um, but especially when it comes to the sacraments, the church, the sacraments, and so forth, um, we want to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of church. All of those, right? That's the thing that we. What I, we want to aim for so that the, none of those become out of out of um, out of proportion to the others. Anybody on any of this on donatism? what do I say every, almost every Sunday after I read the passage? Yes, yeah, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, but then I, what do I say? What do I say when I'm reading? This is the passage I'm going to preach on. Then what do I say? No, I don't say that very often. But I say keep your Bibles open so you see what in the world I'm talking about. Right? That's that Berean aspect. Keep it open. Follow along. Right? So that you can see that this is what's there. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not expecting purity in our relations, but but exhibiting grace. And that, especially as parents. If there's any parents in here... I mean, I know how that game works. My kids, now that's, okay, grace to all the other kids, but my kids, they got to be perfect, right? And even to them, not to expect perfection with them, okay? All right, well, let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song. Oh, wait, let's, this, next week we will be doing Nestorianism. Nestorianism. I'm giving you all these cool titles so that you can just really impress people or just throw out these names, you know. You sound so Manichean. Have you ever thought that maybe you might be a Donatist? You know, that's great. More or less, yes. That's great. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we thankful, are thankful that the day is coming, Lord Jesus, when you will present your bride to, you, to yourself, holy, without wrinkle, blemish, or spot. We do long for that day because we know that very often we are the spots, the wrinkles, and the blemishes. We are grateful that you open the door of forgiveness to us. We are grateful that you offer us restoration over and over again. May we be an, an exhibition of that with each other and with others as well, Lord. We pray that you prepare our hearts now as we get ready to enter into the great assemblies as we, as we confess our sins and then we hear your assurance of pardon. May our hearts truly, when we say lift up your hearts, may our hearts truly be lifted up with adoration and joy and satisfaction in your grace and in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.